0: Please take your Bibles and turn them to james chapter five i 'm loving the book of james y 'all This has been a great, great book to go through, and um, it 's taken more time than I thought it would take uh, to go through and every week i 'm thinking okay we're, I think, I think we 're going to make it through to the end of the book and then and then there 's uh, more content that comes that we need to camp out on and uh, again, I, I felt like maybe we would make it to the end of this book today, but uh, that's not going to happen we're we're gonna be here for at least a couple more Sundays mining the content of this incredible book, and uh, we are in James chapter five. Now, a major theme in the book of James is patient steadfastness and perseverance in trial while trusting and relying on God and this is what makes The book's so incredibly relevant and so incredibly timeless because everybody experiences painful trials in their lives. And these first century Jewish Christians that James is writing to really were suffering. They faced persecution, displacement from their homes, extreme poverty, unjust abuse and oppression by powerful rich people. Uh, These poor believers have no sign of relief anytime soon. And so James, as their concerned pastor having barely got done with the introduction of his letter, immediately launches in chapter 1 into his most urgent concern, and that is how faith works in suffering. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to it in chapter 1, verse 2, when he says... "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" And and what is steadfastness? Steadfastness is faithful enduring. It's a faithful, patient persevering. It's a determination to cling on to God in hope and trust, regardless of the circumstances. And so James, and I'm still looking at chapter 1 here, James says in verse 4, "'Let steadfastness have its full effect.'" that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's talking there about spiritual maturity. He's talking about a life that is increasingly experiencing a deeper and closer and richer fellowship with God, growing in the Lord, and that process eventually leads to a perfect conformity to the image of Christ, where you are at last everything that you should be. So the end goal is Christ-like perfection, which of course isn't fully realized until heaven, but the process of growing into that begins before heaven and is happening through the steadfastness that is produced by trials of various kinds. Now, this is very, very important to understanding the book of James. The hope that we are to have in the time of trial, according to James, is not a hope in the immediate removal of the trial. Instead, the hope that James gives suffering believers is the good and perfect purposes of God in our lives and in our hearts through the trial. Even if, and and I'd say especially if, the trial is prolonged, That in the long run, the trial will produce incredible benefits and blessing. And in the meantime, God will strengthen and help us through the trial. That, in a nutshell, is the hope that James gives us. That can be a really hard perspective for us to have when we are in the thick of it, when we're in the thick of an intense trial. And that's why in verse 5 of chapter 1, I guess I should have said turn to chapter 1, but don't worry, I'm going to get to chapter 5 in a second. In verse 5 of chapter 1, James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Pray to God in faith that He might give you the clarity of vision so that you might view the trial rightly and navigate it correctly. And then in verse 12, James again emphasizes patience in prolonged trial when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And so the book of James begins with this emphasis on patience and prayer in response to the trial. And then these themes come back around full circle in chapter 5, patience and prayer. When James says, now we are in chapter 5, when James says in verse 8, be patient in suffering. He says, uh, establish your hearts in the knowledge of the Lord's return uh, who one day will come back and he will right all wrongs and he will vindicate the suffering of his oppressed people. And so we see yet again, James' focus is not on a hope in the immediate relief from the trial, but on enduring the trial until such a time when the Lord will finally return and we stand before him. And, And so just as in chapter one, right after he encourages steadfastness in times of trial, James then moves into the theme of prayer and relying on God in the middle of the trial. So, the book begins with patience and prayer, and the book ends with the exact same emphasis, patience and prayer. In fact, this closing section of James, which we're going to spend at least the next couple of Sundays looking at, is dominated. It's dominated by the subject of prayer. In fact, prayer is mentioned in every verse between verses 13 and 18. And what James is really trying to tell us here is that at the heart of faithful endurance as a Christian through trials of various kinds, at the heart of that endurance is prayer. Prayer in your personal life, prayer with other believers in the body of Christ. And I'm really excited to take this on these next couple of weeks and look at these verses because when people talk to me about the struggles of their Christian walk, one of the things that keeps on coming up over and over again is prayer. Many Christians have very weak prayer lives. Many Christians pray sporadically. They they put little time and little effort into prayer. They have little motivation for prayer. They don't understand the benefits and the power of prayer. And most Christians want help and encouragement in prayer. And so I'm praying (laughs) over these next couple of weeks as we focus more on prayer. It's really going to help and encourage you and motivate you to pray and pray more by yourself and with others. So, with all that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. And here's one of the reasons why it's taking a long time to get through the book of James. We're only looking at one verse again. Second week in a row we're doing that, but it's so good. We're looking at verse 13 of chapter 5. James writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this preached word as it goes forth will encourage the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Give us all eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say to this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our focus is, is on verse 13 this morning, and it's, it's pretty straightforward, and it's not hard to outline this. And I've got three points this morning, two of them directly from the text and then one by inference. And, uh, and the first thing that James teaches us about prayer is that we should pray when we are suffering. We should pray when we are suffering. James opens up the section with that question. Is any among you suffering? Now, that word suffering in the Greek is pretty broad in meaning, and it includes any kind of external or internal hardship. Uh, the, the word is used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.9, where he speaks of his sufferings for the gospel as he is bound in prison with chains like a criminal. Uh, the word is used by James himself earlier in verse 10 of this chapter when he speaks of the sufferings of the prophets. And of course, the sufferings of the prophets were extremely diverse. Uh, You think about Jeremiah's persecution, Ezekiel losing his wife, Hosea suffering from his wife's infidelity, uh, Elijah being hunted and on the run, Uh, all of those kinds of afflictions and more would fall under the umbrella of that word James uses for sufferings. It's a multifaceted suffering. It's simply anything you go through where someone looks at you and says, that's bad that would be included in the sufferings that James is talking about. And that's why James opens his book in chapter 1 talking about trials of various kinds. Uh, Those Christians James was writing to were enduring a variety of things, uh, diverse, multifaceted trials. And James uh, just assumes that such hardship is normal for a believer, which runs against the grain of some teachings today that promise smooth sailing as long as you are obedient to God. You know, there's people who think that way. Uh, If I'm obeying God, if I'm following the will of God, things should go easy. And that's why Uh, Sometimes Christians get surprised and frustrated when they feel like they've been trying hard to do the right thing, and yet their lives seem to be spiraling into increased difficulty. And yet the Apostle Peter, also writing to suffering Christians, says in 1 Peter 4, 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And what some Christians don't realize is that not only does life in a fallen world come with hardship and affliction— even for obedient believers, but that fiery trials are actually part of God's plan to produce steadfastness in us, which conforms us to the image of Christ. And so trials of various kinds are normal in any church. Sitting in the chairs of this church this morning, is a representation of trials of various kinds. Some of y'all, I know what some of y'all are going through. Others are going through things that that maybe very few of us know about. Some of us here have been hammered with chronic illness and, and other physical difficulties. Others have been struck by relational betrayal. Others deal with significant financial turmoil, or difficult children, or difficult parents, or jobs, Uh, Some of you know well uh, the suffering of losing a loved one or the rejection from others because you are a Christian. And some of you can say, well, uh, uh, yes to all those, all of the above, and, and, and then more on top of that have I experienced in my life. Now, when trouble and calamity and hardship enters your life, when you're beset by difficulty, what is your natural response to that? How do you normally respond to difficulty? Uh, For many of us, our natural response is to fall into sinful anger, get bitter, fall into hopeless despair, be bound up in fear. Maybe for some of us, we try to control and fix and manipulate things. Others complain or descend into self-pity. Now, certainly, we should expect the world to respond in those ways, but we, the people of God, are to respond differently. And so, James says... In verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, that seems rather elementary and basic, and maybe not very helpful. In fact, for someone who is suffering, what James just said may even be annoying. Okay, James, sure, prayer's good. I got that. I already did that. And guess what? Nothing happened. Life still stinks. Now we need to think about that attitude. Often what we mean by I prayed and nothing happened is that my trial didn't go away. I'm still suffering. Uh, Isn't that what we usually pray for in times of trial, that God might take it away from us? That's often what I pray. Bring help, bring healing, bring an end to this difficulty. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I prayed. Nothing's changed. My problem's still here. Guess that didn't do anything. What's the point of praying? Now let me be clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with pleading with our Heavenly Father for relief from our sufferings. I mean, isn't that what the Apostle Paul did in regards to his thorn in the flesh that he talks about? He prayed multiple times for relief. There's nothing wrong with expressing that desire, that request to God, and sometimes God graciously gives you what you ask for. But when James says, if you're suffering, you should pray, what kind of prayer does he have in mind? That's the question that we need to ask, because that's the book that we're reading. We're reading James's words. What does he have in mind? Is James thinking primarily about the immediate removal of a trial? And I would say no, because that would be totally out of step with the entire context of everything that James has said so far. We've we got to remember that, when we, that we ought not to read any verse in the Bible without considering what it means in its larger context. Otherwise, we run the risk of missing the author's point and missing the help that the scripture intends to give. So, thinking about the context, what is the book of James about? The book of James is not about how to make your trials end quickly, it's actually about the exact opposite. It's all about spiritual endurance and perseverance through the ongoing trial. So that gives us a clue about how James wants us to pray. In fact, we have more than a clue. All we have to do is go back to chapter 1 and look at what James has already said explicitly about prayer in the midst of trials. After he said in chapter 1, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because of the work of God in the suffering, then James says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him pray to God. So James is telling you, to make it a priority in your prayers to ask God for wisdom to respond to the ongoing trial rightly. That's what needs to dominate your prayers. We we need to be praying that we would respond to trials not naturally, uh, not how the world responds to trials, but to respond to trials supernaturally with a hopeful faith-filled, expectant joy in the guaranteed good work that God is doing in you and for you in the trial uh, as you persevere and remain steadfast in the trial with the expectation that through this you will increase in spiritual maturity, which means your relationship with God will be deeper and richer and sweeter as you move ever closer to Christ's conformity in your life. You're praying that you'll be able to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. That needs to be your priority in prayer, according to James. And I wonder why sometimes it's not a priority in my prayers. Why do prayers for the removal of the trial outweigh my prayers for patient, steadfastness, and perseverance in the trial? Especially, especially when I know that God is actually working in the trial to help me. Uh, to make me spiritually mature, uh, to to bring me into deeper fellowship with God that I'm actually benefiting from the trial. If I'm being really honest, I don't like the answer. Uh, I think the answer is that sometimes in my worst moments, I'm more interested in relief now than I am in growing closer to God. Don't you feel that way sometime? Can we just like drop the mask and be real about that? Right? We, we read James chapter 1 and the joy we're supposed to have in trials because of what God's doing, and sometimes we don't care about that. Or maybe I'm the only one in this room who doesn't. That's my honest answer. I value escape from the trial more than I value knowing God better because of the trial. That's probably something we should all think about and contemplate. There's a real danger for us here because... If we are consumed with the desire to get out of the trial more than we are consumed with a passion for God and for Him to be glorified in our afflictions, then when the trial doesn't end in the timing that we want, we will be tempted to give up on prayer altogether. And when that happens, then you're exactly where the devil wants you. Devil wants to use your trial, your sufferings, to cut you off from God. Was that not his plan with Job? And, and, when, and when Job's wife, seeing the suffering of Job, said, curse God and die, she was unwittingly a mouthpiece of the devil, because that's exactly what the devil wanted Job to do. And so, there are times in our frustration in the trial where we're going to think, we, we may be tempted to think, God God's not helping, God's not listening, I'm done with God. And James comes along and says, no. Don't run from God, run to God if you're suffering, and don't don't hope in God answering your prayers the way you want Him to, hope in God, period. Hope in God and in His wisdom and in His good purposes for you. And if you struggle with how to pray in those times, if, if it's hard to find words, and sometimes it is, especially when we're in the middle of very intense suffering, I would advise that you turn to the psalms. Uh, The psalms are a wonderful resource for suffering prayers. Uh, Make the psalms a regular part of your prayer life, because they're full of prayers for all kinds of situations. Lots of them deal with suffering and and by the way, lots of them deal with asking for deliverance from the trial, because again, there's nothing wrong with that. But in addition, the Psalms also are about relying on the strength and protection of God in the midst of the trial. And, and the Psalms can give you a vocabulary of prayer that you can incorporate into your conversations with the Lord. I'm telling you, I'm so serious about this in my own life that, that there, there have been few things that have invigorated and revolutionized my prayer life more than spending time in the Psalms. It's been such a help for me. And so, you have prayers like Psalm 138.3, where the psalmist says, on the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Now, how do you take a psalm like that and make it your own in your personal prayers? It's not hard to do. O oh Lord, I'm going through a trial. I want it to end right now. It's not ending. I'm afraid, God, so I call on you now to make me bold with strength in my soul to help me endure. That's, that's not hard. That, that, that's, it's not hard to take a psalm and make it your own like that. Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Oh, there's wait. There's that concept of patience Again. Wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my fortress. So you read that, and you turn it into a prayer. Father, help me to wait for you in my trials. Help me to hope in you. Be my rock and be my fortress. Forgive me for seeking security in other things. And if you're going through a a really long season of suffering, Psalm 138.8 is so good, which says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You don't even really have to alter that one at all. That's a great prayer. When we pray like this, we're obeying James 5.13. And as you move forward in faith, know that God won't leave you hanging. Uh, That there is all sufficient power and resources for you to suffer well to the glory of God to the degree that it produces blessing and steadfastness and deeper spiritual maturity in your life. And that's why James is urging the suffering soul to pray. Because there is real power in prayer. And sometimes we don't experience the power in prayer because we don't pray. There's power in prayer. And James knows that there's no way you're going to be able to navigate the trials of life in your own strength because if you come, because, but if you come to God in prayer for help, there is ample supply of His all-sufficient grace for you. Now, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed for his trial to go away, and each time God answered no, but no wasn't the final answer from God. God then revealed to Paul that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And what's really interesting about that, if you keep reading, you'll see that after God vetoes Paul's request for relief from trial and promises instead his sustaining grace through the trial, Paul doesn't get mad. His response is joyful boasting. His awareness of God's grace in the trial... And God's good purpose in the trial enabled Paul to count it all joy in the trial. Maybe he was even thinking of what James says in chapter 1, as that joy is surging up in his soul. Joyful boasting. And and so Paul learned that his biggest need in that moment wasn't immediate relief— Uh, the immediate disappearance of the trial, his biggest need was God's amazing sustaining grace. And so, as you lean on God through prayer, you can make it, you can endure, and really the grace of God enables you to not just survive, but really enable you to do His will, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9. Those are good psalms, but that's not where I'm going. There we go, 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. If God has called you to a prolonged trial, and He's called some of you to that, a lot of you to that, I can't promise when that trial is going to end, but I can promise you that as you turn to God in prayer for help in the trial, He will graciously provide you with all of the wisdom and all of the grace that you need to do what He has called you to do. Is that not the promise of David, who knew a thing or two about trials? He said in Psalm 55, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. If you're suffering, you need to know that God has not abandoned you that he's with you, that he loves you, and he will never, ever fail you in the deepest and most painful of trials. He is still there. And so, he says things like, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, notice that's not a promise for an immediate removal of the trial but it is a promise of strength and power and sustaining grace through the trial. It's a promise that He'll always be with you and that He'll never forsake you. Uh, God is not some aloof, cold, distant deity. Uh, He desires fellowship with you in the suffering, and He understands your suffering. You know, sometimes it's discouraging when we are really hurting and we're going through really difficult times and we feel like nobody understands. That can never, ever be said of God. In fact, the author of Hebrews, writing to yet more suffering Christians, says this about Jesus, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And by the way, that Greek word there um, for tempted can... Uh, can actually be translated uh, as, as test, uh, as testing in the trials of life. The, the, the test that James talks about that are coming your way, that, that word can be translated either way. Bi- and Bible here is saying that Jesus gets it. He gets you. He understands. And the Scriptures says, for that reason, you can be confident that Jesus will give you all of the grace you need through the trials. And so, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. So James says we should pray when we are suffering, but then he also says that we should praise when we are cheerful. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, some of you say, may say, well, that's, that's obvious. <laughs> There's no major insight here. But again, just as with the part on prayer, I'd urge you to slow down for a second and pause and really think about this. If you are cheerful, sing praise. Is that obvious? Really? Is that your natural response when you're feeling good? When you're feeling successful? When you're in a glad and happy state? I'm just going to be real honest here and say that I know that for me, well, I I know that in times when I feel beat up and worn out by suffering, I know I can be tempted to sin. But, But being real honest with you folks, I tend to see disobeying the second part of verse 13 as a much bigger temptation for me. Like when I'm feeling good, when I'm doing well, when I'm just cruising through life, it is then that I'm in a bigger danger of drifting from the Lord. Sometimes the times when I feel good are more dangerous for me than the times when I feel bad. Sometimes the times where, where, where I, 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 I'm, I'm cheerful and, I, and I'm happy and, and, and I'm doing well are times where I drift and I forget the Lord. Why? because in those times I tend to become self-sufficient and self-reliant, and I don't feel very needy. And so, God, I can do life on my own quite well, thank you very much. And the Bible is fully aware of this. Uh, So, for example, in Deuteronomy 6, when God's about to send his people into the promised land to take it over and enjoy it, Moses gives the people a warning. Good times are coming. (laughs) And then, and then he gives a warning. You don't think that a warning comes with the declaration that good times are coming. But, but, he, but he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. In other words, the blessings are just coming blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing, and you think, okay, things are so good. Yeah, I'm going to be on fire for God. And then Moses says, when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see how sneaky the devil is? The devil's so sneaky He's got tricks for when you're overwhelmed by suffering, and he's got tricks for you when you're not. When you're weighed down with affliction, the devil says, well, obviously God is useless and you don't need him. He's no help. He's praying and nothing's changing. And when you're riding high, the devil comes along and says essentially the same thing. Well, I guess you don't need God. You're doing just fine on your own. That's why the writer of Proverbs wisely prays to God. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Uh, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's wisdom. He sees pitfalls either way. And James sees the pitfalls also. Just like there's a natural human way to respond to trials in a godly, supernatural way to respond to trials. There's also a natural human way to respond when you're feeling good, namely being complacent or self-sufficient or arrogant, thinking it's all you, being confident in your own strength, not feeling needy before God. That's the natural way to respond. But there's also a godly way to respond. And James says what you do in those moments is you sing praise. Praise, sing praise. In the Greek, sing praise comes from the word "solo." We get the word psalm from that. A psalm is a song, a hymn of praise to God. So, when we are feeling especially good and especially blessed, we are, we are to go um, directly to God, to intentionally direct praises to God in that moment. So we're going to consistently give Him credit and glory and honor for everything good that we are experiencing do you do that? Does, does James 5.13 seem, seem pretty obvious now that, oh yeah, I've got that down, I do that. Do you really? For some of us, we're going to really have to work hard at getting in the habit of doing this, where praising God is not just, it's not just a part of a, a weekly thing we do on Sunday, but it's part of the normal fabric of everyday life. Uh, when you're driving in your car and you're amazed at a beautiful sunset, you don't have to be a Christian to be in awe of a sunset. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a sunset. That's a very natural thing for anyone to do. But the Christian is not to be natural. The Christian's not to be like everyone else. And so as we enjoy a sunset... We should praise the one who hung the sun in the sky some 93 million miles away in just the perfect place, a little closer, and we'd burn up a little further, and we'd freeze. Praise God for your might and your wisdom. Or if you know a praise song that's fitting, go ahead and sing it. Why why just enjoy a sunset when you can enjoy the God who made it? That's what James is telling you to do. And if you don't have the words, well... Once again, you can turn to the Psalms for direction. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of good praise songs right in the Bible, and it's totally legit to plagiarize those Psalms and make them your own. This is the one time where plagiarism is good. God wants you to copy in this instance. So, if you see that sunset that you're thinking… And, and you're thinking in that moment, well, well, James says that if I'm cheerful, I should sing praise, and I don't know what to say. Well, the greatest worship leader ever, King David, got that covered with Psalm 19. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Consider even memorizing some psalms to help give you a vocabulary for praise. To help you obey James 5.13, so you can praise the Lord when God helps you in a difficult situation. You can praise God even though uh, you're going through tough times and you have a spouse who cares about you, or kids you enjoy, or a good meal to to enjoy, or air to breathe. And you may say, "Well, well, Demon, aren't you going a little too far here? Do we really need to praise God for all of those things? I don't think I'm going too far. Uh, Did not James say in the very first chapter of his book that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights? And isn't that what we sang about earlier in this service? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. He is constantly giving us gifts, and so we should not run out of things to praise Him for. And, of course, I'm, we're not going to be legalistic here about this. If you're enjoying that sunset and you say Psalm 19 instead of sing Psalm 19, oh, no, it's, it's the disposition of the heart. It's praise coming from the heart. It may come out in a, in a, in a triumphant declaration, or, or it may actually come out in a, in, a, in a tune. For some of you who are more musical, maybe consider making a tune to Psalm 19. Jordan? Jordan? one of the benefits of praising god is that when we sing to him with sincere praise we are delivered from the idolatries of our hearts what i mean is that in our sin we are prone to love the gift more than the giver aren't we oftentimes more attached to the, the things that god gives us more than we are to god and if we don't praise god we may end up holding on to his gifts so tightly with our fists that we actually shut out the giver. Now it becomes all about the gifts. But when we open our hands in praise and we remember that these gifts come from the hands of a gracious giver, it turns our attention now away from the gifts and to the giver. It it fans the flame of loving passion, not for the gifts, but for the giver. And as we praise God for his gifts, do we also regularly praise God for the greatest gift of all, for salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ? Do we feel cheerful about that? Well, then, let's sing praise to God. That's, that's how we opened the service this morning when we sang, You have called us out of darkest night into Your glorious light. Why? That we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. May our every breath retell the grace that broke into our strife with boundless love and deepest joy with endless life. May the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. All your blessing comes. Why? That we may praise. May praise the name of Jesus. Do you ever pay attention to the words that you're singing? They're good words. And by the way, uh, Jordan made a Spotify playlist with all the songs that we sing here at Harbin's Church. So you can check that out and, and you can learn those. And that, can, that can help you with praising God wherever you go. Singing praise is a huge thing in the Bible. God, God has made us in such a way where, for most of us, we are stirred by song. There, there is something about singing that can encourage and kindle and move our affections in a special way. And God knows that, which is why He regularly encourages us to, to praise Him through song. Uh, we should praise God on our own, with our families, and most certainly with the people of God when we come together here every single week. In fact, when James says, Is any among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? He's speaking in the plural. Uh, He's speaking to a group. And I see hints here of an expectation James has that they're going to be praying together and they're going to be praising God together. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, because I think there was something special about the people of God coming together and declaring the praises of God together. And James recognizes that a part of developing a church that remains steadfast in the trial is that the church would develop a habit of praise. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In the parallel passage to that, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns. Uh, The idea is that when you come here on Sunday morning for the singing portion portion of the service, it's not just about you and God. (laughs) we're in America, and America is a very individualistic society, and it's creeped into, like, how we do Christianity. And, and even something like worship has become a hyper-personal thing. It's just between me and God. I don't like this song, so I, I'm not going to sing this one. I'll, I'll sit out on that one. Uh, it's not just about you and God. Uh, it's about you and God and everyone else in this room. When we sing praises and hymns, the Bible says we are teaching and admonishing one another. We are instructing one another. We are commending the truths of God to one another. And why do we do that? Because we need reminders. And, a big, and again, because of how God has wired us, uh, often it is, it is easier to, to remember uh, things through song, You know, one of the best ministries that you can have in this church during the service is to sing. How can I serve my church? How can I I minister to other people in the church? Well, there's there's all kinds of ways, but one way is you can sing. You can sing. Uh, Sing with enthusiasm for your brothers and sisters around you. It's one thing I appreciate about Todd over here, man. You sit over by Todd and you hear him. Uh, Sometimes we say, well, I'm, I'm singing for an audience of one. Well, I understand I, I understand what you're getting at, and, and, and I, I, I can appreciate something about that, uh, but the Bible doesn't see praise and worship exactly that way. Yes, we are praising only one, but our singing is meant to help and encourage others as we come together and worship. And It can be an especially helpful ministry to those in the church who are suffering and need encouragement and maybe don't have the physical or spiritual strength to sing in that moment. You sing for them. And you sing to them as you remind them about the glories of God. So praise is not just a personal thing. It's a community thing. It's part of building a people who will persevere and remain steadfast in the trial. So we should pray when we are suffering. We should praise when we are cheerful. And then then my, my closing observation in all of this is that all of life is to be viewed in the framework of God and His purposes. Whether you're suffering, whether you're cheerful, and all the ups and downs of life and everything in between, there is not a single thing in your life that we are to see that is detached from God. And we have a God who intends to walk with us through it all, providing His all-sufficient grace for everything we need and every situation of life. And embracing that truth is the key to steadfast perseverance in the Christian life. That's exactly what Paul was getting at. In Philippians chapter 4, you remember Philippians 4, through all the highs and lows of, of life, Paul managed to be balanced and content and happy regardless. His success hadn't gone to his head, and his afflictions hadn't destroyed him. So, so what is, how does Paul do that? What is Paul's secret? Well, he tells you in Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret, Paul? What is it? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Alec Motier writes that the Christian life is to be an exercise in practiced consecration to hallow every pleasure, sanctify each pain. Our whole life, we might say, should be angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into His presence. I like that. I wish I was that eloquent. That was beautiful. And when we are consistent in obeying James 5.13, not only are we cultivating a lifestyle that produces steadfastness in us, we also become, as a church, a greater witness to the world. When things are good and we always deflect praise back to God, and when things are bad and we cling to God in prayer, confident in His resources to help us through, does it not look strange and unusual to a world that becomes smugly self-sufficient when things are good and collapses when things are bad? A truly praying and praising people in all of the circumstances of life should look weird and unusual to the point where we should not be surprised if one day someone comes to you and says, you know, I just don't get you. I've been watching you for years. I've been listening to you. When, when everything's going well, all you do is talk about the Lord and His goodness. And when everything goes bad, you're not totally losing it. And you're still hanging on to this God. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready to have an answer for those who ask about your hope in the good times and in the bad. You know, that's only going to happen. People are only going to ask you about the hope if you live like you have hope in someone outside of yourself. Uh, you're, you're, you're only going to experience what 1 what Peter 3.15 says, if in all the circumstances of life, you're living in such a way that they're detached to, uh, attached to a God who loves and cares about you. Remember Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in prison again. Paul's always, he's, Paul's such a jailbird. He's in jail again for the gospel. They were severely beaten. They were thrown in jail. Their feet were fastened in stocks. Now, What's the natural way to respond to that? How would you respond? Some of us will respond with a lot of anger. Anger at the persecutors. Anger towards the authorities. Anger towards the guards who beat us up. You just, just wait until I get out of here. Or maybe total despair and despondency with no hope within us. How do... Paul and Silas respond. Do you remember what happened? You know how they responded? Acts 16 says they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They were doing what James says to do. Uh, They were praying and praising, and who knows what they sang that night. Maybe a first century equivalent of what we sang earlier. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And Acts 16 says that the people in the prison were listening to them. (laughs) Whoa. People are listening? it's probably a good thing I wasn't in that prison because who knows the foolishness that would have come out of my mouth. I'm glad they were there. You never know when people are paying attention to the words that come from your lips in times of suffering. Around midnight, we're told an earthquake happened, shook the prison, the doors opened, everyone's bonds were loosened. The head of the jail was going to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped and he was going to be in big trouble. And Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. We're all here. And trembling, the jailer fell to his knees and said to Paul, What must I do? What must I do to be saved? Now, how in the world did the jailer even know that that was a question that he should be asking? How did he know about being saved? How did he know about salvation and and judgment and the gospel? Because evidently, Paul and Silas, through their prayer and through their praise, were testifying the truth of God. They were admonishing. They were teaching. They were praising and and deflecting the focus to God and the realities of the gospel. Now, if Paul and Silas fell into despair and acted like there was no hope If they grumbled and complained and cursed out the jailer, they would have been responding exactly the way that the world responds. And that's natural. Uh, What the jailer saw was supernatural. And I'm not just talking about the earthquake. So, what's the point? The point is that our prayer and our praise as the people of God is for our benefit, and it is for the church's benefit. And it also speaks a word to a watching world about the hope that is in us. Of course, at the end of the day, the anchor of our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, there is no hope that our trials and our sufferings benefit us. Uh, Because apart from the gospel, all trials and sufferings serve as a foretaste of a greater eternal suffering in hell, which is the punishment that all of us deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God. But the gospel speaks a word of hope into that bad news, that Jesus Christ came, took the punishment for sinners on himself, so that all who hope in him might not be punished themselves for their sins, but instead be remade into the beautiful and sinless image of Jesus and all of the good things that happen to us and all of the bad things that happen to us are not random and are not without purpose but are being worked together by a God for the for by God for the good of those who love and trust him